Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD graduating Oxford, Harvard Business School in Stanford, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Vivian Lee. She is the president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences, an alphabet company whose mission is to apply digital solutions that enable people to enjoy healthier lives. Dr. Lee also serves as a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital, and as a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She is the author of the acclaimed book, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone. Vivian is a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard Radcliffe College, received a doctorate in medical engineering from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, earned her MD with honors from Harvard Medical School, and was a valedictorian of her executive MBA program at NYU's Stern School of Business. Vivian, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Fantastic. We're super excited about this conversation. Vivian, you've had such an interesting uh, and impactful career journey so far. To put things into perspective uh, for our audience, can you talk to us a bit about your story, your upbringing, your journey towards medical school, and eventually your journey beyond the traditional uh, career path? Sure, I'm happy to, Alex. And uh, thanks to both of you for, for inviting me. This is, really, this is really a pleasure. Well, my life story, you know, the older I get, the longer the story gets. So I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version of it. I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, my parents came to this country in the 1960s, and they actually worked for a while at Bell Labs, which at that time was a real hub for engineering and innovation, a little bit like... Um, Google and Alphabet. And then they decided to try out academic jobs. So I grew up in an academic family. My father is an electrical engineer and serial innovator, innovator, and my mother is a statistician. And in fact, actually, the two of them even worked together on a project using early neural networks in uh, looking at diabetic retinopathy among the Native Americans in Oklahoma. Uh, my mom was doing epidemiologic research there, uh, looking at cardiovascular complications and diabetic complications among the Native Americans. And I was really drawn to that work when I was in high school. And at the same time, uh, I had the privilege of shadowing a doctor. I wrote about him a little bit in my book, um, Dr. Belknap. And he was an internal medicine physician in town. And so it was really the intersection of those two experiences that made me decide to go to medical school. And like you, I took a detour through Oxford. I had always loved math and engineering, and so I pursued a DPhil in biomedical engineering there. And that's probably why um, after, uh, after some time doing some surgery, I actually ended up landing in a career in MRI, magnetic resonance imaging that intersection of engineering and medicine that really fascinated me. But over time, I got pulled more and more into leadership roles um, and uh, found myself as the chief scientific officer at NYU, 
I really like solving problems and I really like working with people and thinking kind of about the broader strategic landscape. And, um, and when, it, when I was NYU, I found that uh, there was a real disconnect between the remarkable advances that were taking place in the labs and yet at a population level, we were really seeing that people, people were not getting healthier. And they, they weren't taking those, you know, 10 cent a day blood pressure pills that they were getting prescribed, for example, and still landing in our emergency departments with stroke and heart attack. And that, that problem, that paradox was something that I became really, really interested in and really uh, wanted to help solve. And so that's what drew me to the University of Utah, which was a position uh, that I was very privileged to serve in as the CEO of that healthcare system, the dean of the medical school, and the senior vice president of the health sciences campus. And uh, we grew that institution. We we're about a $3.5 billion organization. It's an integrated health care system, which means that in addition to the clinical facilities, the uh, physicians are all employed by the university. And while I was there, we had a chance to do a lot of really innovative things, including... Um, including uh, set up innovation centers in partnership with our College of Engineering, for example, and we set up a new health insurance company. We started a new dental school, actually, when I was there. There were a lot of things that uh, we were able to do in that organization, and it, it was really a dream job. The University of Utah, many people don't appreciate it, but the year that I was recruited, it was actually ranked number one in quality among all university health systems um, by what was then called University Health System Consortium and now called Visient. So it was really a very high-performing organization, and we were able to, to extend from that quality work to also really attack uh, challenges of costs, you know, really reduce cost of care and in turn significantly improving our margin. So anyway, long story short, after that work, and I was uh, during that whole period of time, collecting stories, a lot of success stories from around the country and even around the world about how people had tackled uh, at least some dimensions of the healthcare crisis. And I decided to synthesize those, write, write a book about them called The Long Fix. And, um, and I was about to take another CE role, CO role. Um, after that, I had a year sabbatical to write the book. And um, and then these folks at uh, Alphabet came back to me. They reached out again and said, you know, would you come to Verily, which is Alphabet's healthcare company, and would you, would you be the founder of this startup, Health Platforms? And, um, you know, you've written a book about fixing healthcare. We want you to just come and do what's in your book. You know, just come and fix healthcare. So for the last four years, that's what I've been doing. And in, in Health Platforms now, we have five businesses and a joint venture. And I'm happy to talk more about that, but we really cover the landscape of healthcare from an insurance company to a digital health platform to a business that focuses on value in, in hospitals and healthcare systems. So it's been a pretty, pretty productive uh, last few years and it's been a real adventure uh, across these different dimensions uh, and different careers. So. Thank you, Vivian. I, I love that journey. And I'm, I'm so glad that uh, kind of Alphabet reached out because of the massive impact that kind of you can achieve working with them on changing healthcare. I love the fact that how you described your journey in that you've worked in multiple disciplines of healthcare and 
I think this reminds me of a conversation we had with Kevin Tab from uh, Beth Israel Lahi. And in that conversation, we discussed the importance of bringing innovations and innovative solutions from one discipline to the other. And the fact that most of the innovative solutions, they're not created from scratch, but, but mainly brought from one discipline to the other. And so I feel that kind of being in those multiple disciplines and having experience in them would, would facilitate that transition. So certainly appreciate the point there. And I think one of, one of the classes that we had in the business school, it was around healthcare policy, and we had some folks from Kaiser Permanente. And basically, they talked about the role of innovation within an integrated healthcare system and how having control over, for example, the payer side and the service delivery side within a single organization can really enable a rapid pace of iterative innovation. So certainly appreciate the, the point there as well. I want to shift the conversation to the last uh, to the long fix. We uh, recently had uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal on the podcast, uh, the author of An American Sickness, and her, her book is fascinating. And it, 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 it discussed uh, American healthcare and all the problem that she sees with the extensive focus on business uh, within the American healthcare system. I loved reading your book and reading all the success stories and the fact that it ends with a specific action plan for all the different stakeholders in healthcare and, and how you describe that your experience across multiple disciplines have provided you with insights on success stories and in kind of an insight and a firsthand experience with how to fix the healthcare system. I think you've touched there on the fee-for-service model and the maligned incentives that this payment system creates. Um, so would love to understand what are the main takeaways uh, that readers uh, should take uh, from the book? Kind of how do you look at the dynamic of capitated payments and, and bundled payments evolving uh, perhaps over the next five years? What's, what's your thoughts on that aspect of healthcare? Okay, well, uh, that, that's a, let, me just un, uh, let me just unwrap some of that. So first of all, let me say, I think Libby Rosenthal's book is fantastic. So I actually had dinner with Libby uh, when I was writing my book, and I brought along to that uh, dinner a copy of her book, American Sickness. And, you know, it's totally dog-eared. I had all those little post-it notes stuck, like multiple to each page, you know. And I brought it to dinner and I handed it to her and said, please autograph this for me. Um, and, and, you know, as probably the greatest sign of just what a wonderful writer she is, you know, the brevity that goes with great, being a great writer. She wrote two words in my book. She just wrote, your turn. And then she signed Libby. And I thought, oh, that was so perfect. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wrote this book because, uh, as I said earlier, you know, I've been thinking a long time about the challenges of healthcare, you know, learning a lot from other people, obviously studying. I love field trips. So I used to take the team on little road trips across the country and, and even overseas. And, uh, you know, really felt like, there were so many good ideas that people have been putting forward. What would be really helpful would be to weave those together, really sort of integrate a lot of that thinking. Um, because I think when you put together the collective wisdom of people who have been working in healthcare for such a long time, there's a, there's a lot more clarity 
about what we should be doing to fix our health care, then you might then you might think, you know, if you if you read uh, a lot of the books that are out there, uh, there's most of the literature, I think, is full of descriptions of the problems, a lot of criticism, a lot of hand wringing. But I really wanted to contribute more positively to to the solutions, you know, and I in particular, I had two audiences in mind. I had people like you, you know, people who are in medicine, my colleagues in medicine, my medical students, people that I worked with who were really great at the practice of medicine. You know, they could diagnose an, an ACL tear or, a, you know, hear a mitral regurg murmur or, you know, read an MRI or whatever. But they never really got the business of healthcare. And because they never understood how healthcare really worked, they weren't empowered to fix it. And in my view, physicians, clinicians in general, but especially physicians, are, I think, the most untapped resource when it comes to fixing healthcare, uh, which is why uh, I was actually very excited to be invited to do this podcast, because I think what you're, what you're attempting to share with your audiences is really just fantastic. So, um, so that was one audience that I had in mind. And the other audience I had in mind when I wrote this book was uh, my new audience of colleagues, you know, people like... Uh, the engineers and user experience researchers and product managers in companies like Google and Verily, who are now joining us in healthcare and trying to figure out what they should be working on. And I wanted to be able to explain the challenges and also direct them to solving important problems. Um, so that was sort of my, my audiences. And, and the book itself, um, I'd say maybe there are three core takeaways uh, from the book. You know, the first is what you were just asking about at the end, which is the first takeaway um, is that the fundamental root cause of our healthcare crisis uh, is really the business model. This for-profit, fee-for-service model, you know, we reward doctors, we reward health systems for doing more things to people and not for keeping them healthy and, frankly, out of the healthcare system. Um, the fact that we are fee-for-service and, and for-profit is just really fundamentally a flawed system for healthcare. And we do have some great examples of alternative systems that can work better, even in this country today. So let's learn from those. So that's point number one. Point number two is the, what you were actually just alluding to earlier about the interdisciplinary um, lessons that we can learn from other, other businesses. And that is actually my second point, which is that... Um, Almost every other industry works better than we do in healthcare, and so there's so much for us to learn from them. Um, and I pull from all other kinds of industries, like like banking, manufacturing, you know, service industries. I mean, look at Yelp and TripAdvisor and those. And um, you know, Alex, you and Chad are both in business school. I actually went back to business school later, and I think that's a really terrific experience for learning from your fellow classmates not to mention all the case studies, right, who are in all these other industries. We have so much to learn. So that was the second takeaway or, or the second kind of core part of the book. And then the third is that um, I do feel that we have to find a better balance between our private public kind of uh, approach to healthcare. And of course, we we're, we're never, I, I do not believe we were ever going to become a fully government-run health um, industry. Uh, there's too many trillions of dollars that are in the private sector that uh, would make that impossible, I think. Um, but I do believe that a fundamental change shift that we have to make in the U.S. is that every person must have basic health coverage. 
once that's covered, you can have additional services that are for-profit insurance. You can have additional things. That's fine. You can layer it on like they do in Switzerland, like they do in many other countries. But fundamentally, everybody has to have basic health insurance is the most cost-effective way to achieve population health. But then beyond that, how we find the balance between the public and private sectors, um, I think, is we probably need to make a little bit of an adjustment there in the U.S. as well. So those are kind of the three, the three core points um, of the book. And, uh, and your, your final question about um, different payment models, well, we could probably talk about that for a while, but I, I'd say that um, at its core, I think we are recognizing that the fee-for-service model isn't working. Better models allow clinicians and patients, people, to um, collaborate more effectively with the payers so that if we can achieve better health, everybody can succeed, everybody is rewarded. And I think the best example of that right now that's happening in the country is the Medicare Advantage program that is a growing percentage of Medicare, uh, which I'm sure your listeners know is the government-run program to support uh, healthcare for seniors. And I think we're seeing with Medicare Advantage a, a, a different approach where the government, instead of paying each clinician every time they see a patient, every time they do an echocardiogram, every time they do a catheterization or whatever, they give the clinical group, they give the medical group a fixed amount of money per year to care for each patient and to try to keep them as healthy as possible. And in, that, in this new model, uh, what that means is that if the clinicians take the, let's say, $10,000 per year they have to keep Mrs. Jones healthy, in that year, and they decide to spend some of that money on, say, providing transportation service for her to and from clinic so she can get into clinic, or delivering some of her medications to her house, or sending a nurse over to visit her. Um, if they're able to do that and keep her healthy out of the hospital, and they actually can make some money because it ends up only costing $2,000 a year to care for her, well, then that's actually a win-win because the Government spends less money or can spend less money, say, the next year. Um, they make some money as the clinicians, and of course, the patient's healthier, which is what everyone wants. And so that's the kind of a model that I think we should be aspiring towards more of. Thank you, Vivian. This, this is very insightful. I think I really appreciate the, the point that you've mentioned uh, in terms of physicians being one of the most untapped uh, resources to fix healthcare. I think this uh, reminds me of the notion of the dark side that we discussed with a couple of guests before, where usually clinicians do not have a very good understanding of the role of all the other different stakeholders in the healthcare system, such as, for example, the venture capital arms, such as the healthcare payers, such as the private industry. And I think the way we were trying to address this is to increase the understanding of the beneficial role that these different stakeholders play. And one idea that the Chad and I, multiple guests have kind of played with is the idea of whether the MD program can transition and include more elements of becoming a platform degree that is more similar to the PharmD degree, that is more similar to the MBA, where uh, during that degree, you learn a basic fundamental skill and expertise in multiple disciplines, but you're also equipped 
to pursue a variety of different career options using the knowledge and training that you gained during that degree. So I certainly appreciate the point that you've mentioned there. And I think the other point that I want to reflect on is the existence of alternative uh, successful models for healthcare payments. I think the what I've seen from, uh, from my experience in the UK and in the US is that there is no perfect system, but each system can learn from the other system massively. So for example, in the UK, uh, one of the challenges that they are having today is that they're having difficulty in retaining very talented physicians and physician scientists simply because the financial reimbursement is capped. And I think there was an, an editorial in the Brain uh, Journal uh, that talked about the fact that clinician scientists are becoming a rare breed in the NHS. So I think the NHS can learn a lot from the U.S. healthcare system in terms of how to retain innovative talent. Uh, but at the same time, vice versa, the U.S. healthcare system can learn about a, a lot from the U.K. in terms of payments and in terms of improving the efficiency. And I think this links to, to my next question. In your book, and a very powerful uh, chapter, you speak about how the U.S. spends 8% of the healthcare dollar on administration compared to just 3% in other countries. And it's it's all because of this tug of war battle of paperwork between physicians and insurance companies to, to justify different orders and different interventions. I think this reminds me of a conversation we had with Iman Abu Zaid, the founder of Incredible Health yesterday. She was on the podcast and she was saying that there is a lot of room within the healthcare system for innovative companies to fix the back office of healthcare rather than to focus on the like front patient or clinician focused applications. So I would love to understand your perspective on what are the biggest pain points that can be fixed in administration and what can the tech industry and the innovative startup industry uh, play a role in fixing those? Mm. Yeah, so that, that's thank you for that question, um, Alex. Yeah, the scenario that I describe is, I, I call it the trillion-dollar tug-of-war that takes place every year. And it's the, the, the cause of it is, again, this adversarial relationship between the payers and the providers. And what I mean by that is, if you think about the way in which healthcare is paid for, the half of all Americans who receive their healthcare through, let's say, their employers— um, the, the employers will uh, either do, do it directly or they'll do it through administratively through an insurance company. Um, but essentially, they set aside some money at the beginning of the year for every, every individual. And each of us might pay a little bit of money into that as well, our premiums that we have to pay. And then for the insurance companies to, to make money, what they want to do is to spend as little of that pool as possible, because what's left they can, for the most part, keep. And on the other hand, health systems, you know, with the bright, shiny buildings and all lots and lots of doctors and nurses and other staff that they have to pay every year and expensive uh, equipment that they have to maintain, they want to be able to bill and collect as much of those dollars. So every year there's this tug of war between the payers and the providers and what happens is that we end up building these really powerful forces um, that generate very little value. So on the, 
On the insurance side, there's a ton of effort, you know, in reviewing claims and denying them, creating prior authorization rules, you know, all kinds of ways to try to try to deny the payments. And on the healthcare provider side, there's enormous efforts to upcode. I mean, some people have argued that the entire electronic health record systems are essentially motivated by this desire to improve billing and coding or what we call revenue, revenue cycle uh, performance. And that's, that's probably, too, unfortunately, to a large degree true. So as a result of all that, you know, when, and, and then at the end of the day, when they can't resolve this squabble um, and there is still an outstanding bill that's unpaid, uh, until very recently, it's just fallen to the patient. And that's what we call the surprise bill. And actually, Libby Rosenthal writes a lot about this. Um, luckily, actually, in the No Surprises Act, um, since January of 2022, there's been significant inroads, actually, uh, I have to say, in, in trying to reduce some of the most egregious aspects of, of these surprise bills. But in, in terms of the thinking about how we can solve this problem, I do hope that uh, technology companies will get involved and help support it, but I hope they'll do it the right way. And um, what I mean by that is that, you know, there's a tendency or there's a temptation to get involved in the war uh, and escalate it. So, for example, to create better algorithms for even more upcoding and even better billing on the other side. And then the insurance side to figure out the counter. It's like, you know, cyber and counter cyber. You know, it's like, oh, then we can come up with even better software tools that can identify the upcoding. You know, that I really hope we don't engage in that because uh, I think, unfortunately, that would just, just uh, again, use resources, precious resources, and not achieve any better health. What I, what I think would be helpful would be a couple of things. One is to, again, as I talked about in the last question, focus on how do we create more successful business models. So if we're looking at Medicare Advantage-like programs where we hand over a certain amount of money to a health system and we say, okay, work with patients to help keep them healthy and out of the hospital. Well, there, there are enormous opportunities for technology. I know you're working on some of this. We're working on this at Verily as well. Digital health solutions that can really engage patients, create a really personalized experience, really enable them to get access to care conveniently outside of the walls of the clinics and hospitals and so on. Um, so how do we leverage our technology AI capabilities to focus on making those new models of healthcare more successful? That would be one. And another area um, to focus on is another one of the reasons why we have all this trillion-dollar tug-of-war, which is that we have so much variation in the practice of medicine. And um, so let's apply more evidence. Let's use what's been published in the literature, evidence-based medicine, where we can apply it. Let's try to apply that more. So one example is... Um, there, one area of a lot of this sort of uh, back and forth squabbling has been in the field of, of high cost imaging in the past. Imaging doesn't seem so expensive now that we have these um, gene therapies and other things, but in the past, imaging was a, was a target, right? And so there were a lot of requirements for prior authorization for somebody to get an MRI, for example, or a PET scan or something, something like that. And um, in the last few years, uh, there have been some nice arrangements that have worked out, which is that if a health system follows evidence-based care pathway where an MRI is clearly indicated under certain circumstances, and they just follow those protocols, 
um, which could be automated in the electronic health record, for example, then the insurance companies won't dispute it. The patient doesn't have to worry about getting a bill. The, the clinician doesn't have to fill out tons of paperwork just to get it done. You know, it can just happen. So the more we can automate those standard practices, ensuring that they are based on evidence, uh, I think that's another huge opportunity for reducing some of this administrative burden. Vivian, this is amazing, especially the point on the importance of tech companies solving this in the right way. I think a, a couple of my private equity friends here at HBS, when they talk about the healthcare companies that the previous funds invested in, like these companies, it's the first time that I've heard of them. Like they kind of do something on the administration of payments. It's something that is like very super niche and very specific to the U.S. healthcare system simply because of this massive inefficiency there. So it's been really interesting to learn that there is a complete industry on kind of solving that market failure. And I, I certainly agree with, with your point. And I hope like the, the new tech players do not uh, reinforce that industry. Well, I think that's partly the responsibility of people like you and Shad. I think the more we have people who understand healthcare and understand what is important, what we're really trying to achieve, and that I hope are fundamentally motivated to do good, uh, as long as we have people like you who are involved in these technology companies, uh, the, the companies are not inherently out to do evil. I mean, they're actually trying to do good for the most part, but they need some direction, I think, often, and you can provide that kind of direction. And so I think it's sort of a, a critical time for people like you to be involved. Absolutely, Vivian, I, I completely agree. And that's one of the reasons why we think that there is a massive role for, for medical doctors to bring that firsthand clinical experience and an understanding of the system uh, to the game. And I think another point that, that I've had a firsthand experience with is the reimbursement codes that are used in the electronic health record. And just to, to build on the point that you've mentioned that uh, it seems that the EHR was built mainly for the purposes of reimbursement, the fact that the most frequent diagnostic labels that we use in electronic health records are based on an ICD uh, codes is the biggest example of the fact that electronic health records were structured around payment, and it creates a lot of challenges with the implementation of AI within that space. This has been a fascinating conversation from my side, Vivian. I can go for days. I have so many different questions, but in the interest of time, I'll just hand over to Shad and thank you for providing the insights. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Vivian, this has been such an interesting conversation. I'm really loving it so far. And I think a couple of things that I wanted to highlight and reflect on is just doubling down on this notion that physicians are some of the most untapped resources in healthcare right now. And we've had several guests, and, and, and we try to sometimes be overly quantitative with how risky or how rewarding something actually is. And I think it's fair to say physicians generally and, and dispositionally tend to be a relatively risk-averse bunch. And I think that's a shame because there's just so much potential for us to contribute in, in different elements within healthcare. And I think the risk of going, quote unquote, off the beaten path to borrow our title, at least in the context of a very advanced economy like the United States, where physicians can do other interesting things, is relatively lower than, let's say, a physician going off the beaten path where I grew up in Bangladesh. And I think in the U.S., on balance, the opportunity cost of, of being in a job that you may not be completely fulfilled in may actually be higher than uh, expanding the scope of what it means to be a physician in the, in the 21st century. So th that's an element that we think a lot about here in the podcast, and it sounds like it's important to you as well. I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, you, you mentioned AI and its applications in medicine. 
As Alex mentioned, he's finishing up his degree in healthcare ML, and this is something that we talk a lot about in the context of our own company that we're starting. And looking at Verily, the, the company has a very broad focus in healthcare and life sciences with projects ranging from you know, biomedical research to virtual care to wearables to even technology for mosquito eradication. And it has steadily extended its reach into very diverse areas to include care solutions for sleep apnea, diabetes, to developing miniaturized continuous glucose monitors. And even more during the COVID-19 pandemic, the company has shifted its focus, you know, to COVID screening, testing, research programs, and all that. And as the president of health uh, platforms at Verily, and, and someone whose main passion is to improve health outcomes in the U.S. and shift the scale towards patient interests, can you just walk us through your strategies and visions regarding developing products and, and platforms that transform health systems uh, in, in order to make life easier and healthier for patients? And just what are your thoughts around AI applications and its future within the healthcare system? Well, that, that's a great question, Chad. There, the work that I do, so as I mentioned earlier, health platforms is really a startup. Uh, we started four years ago, and I was brought to Verily to, to launch this effort that would leverage so much of the capability across Verily uh, from the work that we were doing in Project Baseline and the Clinical Studies Platform, which really gave our organization a tremendous amount of maturity around uh, how do we think about very diverse data types, everything from EHR and claims data to sensor data, self-reported data, patient-reported outcome data, and so on, as well as our work with uh, in the hardware side, sensors. We've done a lot, as you mentioned, development, continuous glucose monitors, and uh, all sorts of other hardware. And how do we leverage all of that and really think about how we can truly transform the, the healthcare delivery side? And so we focused on, or I, I should say that um, my, my charge was to first think about the strategy and to develop that strategy. And the focus has been on, um, in my view, critically to engage and develop tools for patients for providers and healthcare systems and for payers. And it's really how do we, as I've alluded to in my book, and this is really what I'm trying to bring to fruition, really bring it to life at Verily, is how do we enable all three of those to work together in a very synergistic way with aligned interests so that we can all just be working towards better health? That's really been the focus. And AI has an enormous role to play in everything. You know, I, I've, AI, as you know, since you all are, are studying it and closer to it on a day-to-day -day basis than most people, is really just a set of tools. It would be just almost like asking, how do you think computers are going to affect healthcare? You know, the AI algorithms are just ways in which we deal with large data sets and um, just another way of extracting um, patterns, I guess, from those data sets. So maybe a good example is in our Onduo business. So Onduo is a digital health platform that uh, started with a focus on helping people with type 2 diabetes manage uh, their condition. It uh, included the use of a continuous glucose monitor, which we helped design for Dexcom, and uh, has a um, uh, some, some very interesting, so with the continuous glucose monitor, as you well know, you put this small device on your arm or your abdomen, and it estimates your blood sugars 24-7. There's a Bluetooth chip, so it transmits it to your, um, it transmits it to your 
phone, and then you could see your blood sugar tracings throughout the day. And then you take pictures of your meals and snacks. And uh, for the first time, people can make a visual association between what they're eating and how it's affecting their blood sugars. So it's very engaging, very personalized, very N of one, I think, as one of you said earlier today. Um, and at the same time, it also layers on artificial intelligence to um, look at patterns, to say, recognize that perhaps for Alex, you know, maybe soy milk is better for you than skim and shad. Maybe you do better with skim milk than soy, you know. Um, we use AI in the chatbots. We use AI to think about um, instead of looking at the blood sugar tracing 24-7, you know, we actually look at the patterns uh, that are coming in from the sensors and the devices. Uh, we even can use it to think about different kinds of problems like how do we engage patients? Uh, how, do, how do we make sure that we are sharing information with people in a way that is most motivating and engaging for them. So we know that there are many different personality types, many different ways in which people are influenced. You know, some people are very influenced if, they're, uh, if their clinician tells them that they should do something, if they read about it in the literature, if they uh, watch a YouTube video, if their friends tell them about it, you know. And so we can obviously see some patterns uh, from our data with respect to engagement and, uh, and behavior change. So... AI just in that one business is used in all kinds of different ways uh, that are all very powerful and uh, almost universal now in what we do. And I think the ultimate goal is to achieve that um, personalization of healthcare at scale so that every individual, instead of, you know, in the old days when I was in medical school, we were really taught that the standard patient was a 70 kilogram white male. I mean, that was just it. Like, we didn't even doubt it. Like, there I am walking along in no way a 70-kilogram white male, am I? And yet I would just accept it. Yeah, well, of course. You know, that's how we dose everything. That's how we think about everything. Um, but, you know, with the new technologies, and this is where AI is incredibly powerful, we can think of each of us as individuals, and we can, can take that individuality not only as a, at a biological or physiologic level, but at a social, economical, you know, kind of that, that whole you that um, behavioral, that, that determines how you behave and your overall health outcomes. And so that's what makes it so much, so much more powerful. Got it. Thank you, Vivian. This is incredibly insightful. And if I may say, like very inspirational for me and Alex, because I think the, the vision you laid out for hyper-personalization, I, I know those are not your words, but mine, but I think that's something that Alex and I think a lot about. Obviously, personalization is possible in this digitally native environment, you know, compare it to biotech where product iteration is very long and expensive and, and very regulated uh, in a digitally native environment, you have that potential upside of, of creating something that's hyper-personalized, taking into account all these digital biomarkers and sensor data, hardware data, whatever it is. This is something that I think is the current forefront and a future forefront in using data. And speaking of data, I just wanted to make a plug for actionable data, because I think if data isn't actionable, and I know Verily and health platforms is working on, on making data very, very actionable and, and usable, in the absence of that, uh, increased data can actually be uh, an increased burden for different stakeholders, whether it's patients, providers, or you know insurance companies. 
uh, but servicing it and anchoring it around the, the workflow for patients, providers, payers, and other stakeholders is, is really where I think value can actually be unlocked. I think shifting gears here, and, and we're close to finishing up, and this has been such a great conversation with you, Vivian, wanted to touch on another element of the book. It, it provided some shocking statistics on medical mistakes. And for example, medical mistakes are the third leading cause of death in America. Between 250 to 400,000 people are dying from it each year. And, and this is a particularly sensitive topic, especially because a nurse recently was found guilty for you know, criminally negligent homicide for administering the wrong medication to a patient that led to his death. And can you tell us a little bit high level, your thoughts on the sensitive issue of medical errors? And we as a society obviously want to reduce the frequency and severity of these medical mistakes, but we also understand that clinicians are human beings first and foremost. And as the famous saying goes, to, to err is human. And so how can we reduce the negative impacts of these medical mistakes while also being mindful that we don't build an overly punitive culture around clinical medicine? Well, th this is a very difficult topic because, um, as you know, uh, both of you as practicing physicians, um, the vast, vast, vast majority of people in healthcare are trying to do their very best every day uh, for their patients. Uh, without a doubt. And so when we start talking about things like medical mistakes, there's a tendency to want to blame. You know, there's a tendency to think, well, if it's a mistake, somebody's at fault and somebody has really uh, done something wrong. And, and, it, and, and I think it's very important. Well, first of all, let me just say that the statistic is very controversial, you know, because we don't really measure or report medical mistakes. It's not documented, unlike, <laughs> unlike the use of the EHR for billing and coding. We do not really document medical mistakes. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that's coded on a death certificate either. You know? So we really don't know exactly. So these are speculations. And uh, the paper that we're talking about was published in uh, 2016 and is an estimate. But nonetheless, I think we all know that medical mistakes are much higher than they really ought to be. And I believe uh, there, there are many different causes of mistakes. Uh, there's, I talk about many of them in the book. Um, mostly, I, I think if, if I were going to reduce it to, to one word or a couple of words, it's really the lack of human factors design in our healthcare system. So, and what do I mean by that? You know, we have nurses and doctors and other clinicians who are distracted continuously. You know, whether it's in the old days, beepers, phone calls, whatever it is, you know, people stopping and interrupting you. And the human mind can't withstand interruptions and still maintain train of thought. You know, we don't have very effective processes. Uh, when you look at, say, manufacturing lean, lean Six Sigma kind of approaches, all of those processes, all the steps that are put into place to make sure that manufactured products are not defective. Um, you know, I, I talk about the fact that we visited a um, airbag manufacturing plant outside of Salt Lake City uh, as part of our tour to, to try to learn about how we could improve our own um, performance. And, you know, their goal was fewer than one in a million mistakes. And in U.S. healthcare today, it's estimated that about maybe 30% of patients in any hospitalization will experience some kind of a mistake, even if it's a minor mistake, 
like a medication may be delivered a, an hour later than it should have been. So sometimes it's, it's quite minor and probably doesn't have any significant impact. But still, 30% is pretty far off from one in a million. And so why, why are our processes not there? Why have we not created a better work environment? Why don't we have um, electronic health records that actually help us provide better care or monitors that don't just beep every two minutes and make us crazy and make us turn off the alerts <laughs> instead of actually uh, intelligent designs where we're notified only for things that really are serious. Uh, these are all problems that are solvable, but I think they really reflect um, an underemphasis on human factors and underemphasis on trying to achieve better health outcomes and, uh, and not enough emphasis on really... Um, how do we really help doctors, help clinicians, and their patients achieve better health? Yeah, Vivian, this is incredibly powerful. And, and I think you can, and this is just me off the cuff, you know, there's presumably very different types of medical mistakes, you know, mistakes in process, mistakes in knowledge, in, in judgment, in technical ability. And, and, and you can imagine that there's so many complex sequence of events uh, that go into what culminates in what we call a mistake. You can think about decreasing the barriers, and, and you sort of aptly pointed out uh, all these distractions that, that are within the within the hospital context. You can think about decreasing the barriers of these mistakes, and and also using technology to actually help us tackle the systems level problems, the process level problems, or facilitating knowledge, whatever it is, to ensure that the number of mistakes and the frequency of mistakes and the severity of mistakes actually goes down. Um, so I really appreciate how you laid out what's at the core of all these mistakes happening, or most of these mistakes happening in, in the current healthcare system. I think uh, finishing up here, uh, the last question uh, you know I had was about your you mentioned when you were a dean of University of Utah Health, you had students that were coming out of college to the to the world of medicine, asking you critical questions about healthcare and things that they don't understand how to deal with. You know, similarly, we've had students and and young MDs express some frustration to us publicly and privately about dealing with the system and and the lack of information that's available during, you know, let's say medical school or medical training about how to navigate that system. Um, so in your opinion, how do you think we can alter medical training in a way that simultaneously appreciates that building, simultaneously appreciates that clinical medicine is a full-time and very noble job, while also recognizing the realities that building a functioning healthcare ecosystem requires the buy-in of numerous non-clinical players and, and oftentimes doctors in those non-clinical roles? Well, that's a question that I spent a lot of time thinking about, especially when I was the dean of a medical school. And, uh, I, I, and of course, as I said earlier, it's one of my real motivations for writing the book. Because as I was looking out, I used to do um, uh, town halls and sessions with our first and second year medical students before they hit their clinical rotations. And actually, the book came out of a series of lectures that I gave them about how healthcare works and what I thought that they really ought to understand about that. So that was what motivated me. And as I um, got to know the students, I also came to feel much more optimistic about the future of healthcare. I had to give a talk for the National Academy of Medicine on the future of academic medicine. And so I actually did, uh, I did a dedicated town hall with my first and second years just to ask them because I thought, well, you're, you're the future, so let me ask you, you know, what do you think about the future? And I was really struck by um, the very different 
perspectives. I mean, you alluded earlier to risk aversion. Actually, I think that that's partly generational. Also, the narrowness of, of focus is also, I think, pretty generational. I mean, I'll never forget, um, you know, one winter holiday break, I got an email from one of my medical students who actually joined my, my research lab. And he wrote to me, he's like, dear Dr. Lee, I just want to let you know, I'm so happy I just sold my first startup. And I thought to myself, okay, that did not happen in my first year of medical school. None of my classmates would have written that email, you know. Um, and so we tried to create some programs within the medical school to allow students to really engage um, in more diverse ways. So we'd always had an academic, uh, like a scholarly capstone project for medical school. I think that's very common. You expect your students to do a research project, you know, write something at the end. And we broadened that. We said, you know, we had a few different programs. We had one program, which was uh, a student-initiated program called Bench to Bedside. It was students who, um, it, it was a program who brought together students from the medical school, from the College of Engineering, and from the business school. And they formed little innovation teams sponsored by some faculty. Usually it was a faculty who had an idea about something, you know, maybe a new catheter, maybe a new tourniquet, maybe a new whatever, you know, new way of doing video games for kids with autism, for example. That was another one. And these students created, uh, you know, a little pitch. And we actually ended up raising a little bit of money. And so they actually had a whole event where VC and various people came and judged. And we allowed them to use that little startup project in lieu of their traditional academic, you know, paper, for example. Others did. We also relaxed that kind of requirement and made it possible for students to engage in quality improvement projects within the hospital. You know, get involved in operations. If you're interested in becoming a CEO of a hospital, it's not a bad time as a medical student even to start to get to understand how a hospital actually works, how the business actually works, uh, or in a community health center, for example, how primary care actually works in the field. And so we tried to make it a little more flexible, encourage students to be involved in something that obviously had to do with health care, but um, if, if you wanted to work with fruit flies and mice, wonderful. If you wanted to do a quality improvement project, great. If you wanted to invent a new video game startup in healthcare, terrific. Uh, and I think that's, that kind of um, encouragement will lead us to train a broader, uh, more diverse, diversely equipped, let's say, set of future physicians who will be able to help us solve these kind of problems and interface with a much more diverse set of partners than we traditionally have in healthcare. Um, so those are some of the things that I've thought about. Yeah, Vivian, that's really inspiring and I would say refreshing. And you mentioned this generational split. You know, you know I don't want to be too presumptuous, but I, we've spoken with a couple of guests who are, you know, maybe a 10 or 20 years or 30 years older than I am. And, you know, back in the day, the MD, MBA programs weren't as robust and they weren't as visible as, as they are now. It seems like there's been a proliferation of that dual degree. I think the MD, JD program was even more popular back in the day. And a lot of our guests who sort of got their training in the 80s or 90s or even in the 2000s, said they either didn't have any mentors, uh, physician mentors who went off the beaten path, or they had uh, clinical mentors who were wholly unsupportive of the transition into, broadly speaking, into business. And so Alex and I always feel very thankful for the folks who came before us who really pioneered that route, because no matter what Alex and I want to do, there's always one or two people we can turn to 
who sort of paved that way previously. And, and so I think that generational shift is real. And it's lovely to see that you and, and a lot of your colleagues were very open and flexible with the medical curriculum in, in Utah. This has been a really, really fascinating conversation, Vivian, one of our favorite episodes. Just to finish off, I'd love to know how can our listeners learn more about you or, or follow some of the amazing work that you, Health Platforms, and Verily are doing? Oh, thanks. Well, it's been it's been great to be with you. Um, I love to stay connected with people. I'd love to hear feedback about the book, for example, if people want to engage on that. I have a website, VivianLeeMD.com. Um, and of course you can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, Vivian Lee MD. And, uh, and I just want to encourage everyone to, you know, get the most out of their life and think very creatively about how they can contribute to better healthcare for all for the future. Hey, I'm going to be one of your patients. So please work on improving it before you, before you start needing to take care of me. Okay. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Uh, direct request uh, to our audience uh, from from the from the great Vivian Lee. But thank you again, Vivian. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Chad. I really enjoyed the conversation with Vivian today. A lot of interesting insights to reflect on. But I think that my top insight is around the standardization uh, challenges that we face in healthcare today. Vivian has mentioned a couple of really powerful examples on how much we need to standardize our clinical uh, practice based on evidence. And I think it's been really interesting to see the adoption of new technologies and healthcare being driven by the need for standardization. So I'm thinking here about the adoption of AI and the medical imaging space and a significant chunk of that early adoption was driven uh, by the need for a standardized opinion on a particular medical image. Because if we look at certain scans, and if you bring a group of 10 radiologists, there can be a significant interoperator difference in that a part of those radiologists would label it as a disease and a part would label as non-disease. And that interoperator variability can sometimes be a challenge uh, because it makes benchmarking performance harder. So I think idea of variability and, and standardization is a very important one. And I think I would encourage the uh, entrepreneurs and innovators in the space to think of new ways through which we can apply technology and uh, to solve this challenge and new ways to bring really that clinical evidence into practice. So that's been the uh, takeaway on my side, Chad. Over to you for yours. Thanks, Alex. Uh, I really like that takeaway. And an adjacent takeaway is sort of this, this notion of medical mistakes. Uh, we know that it costs a lot of healthcare dollars and a lot of lives are lost uh, because of medical mistakes. The actual number is a little bit controversial because it can be challenging to exactly delineate, but, but we know it's, it's a big component of our healthcare system. And the reason intuitively is because healthcare is, is very, very complicated, logistically, organizationally, uh, in terms of the training you need, application of knowledge, judgment, all of this stuff. It's, it's a very complicated space. And tech integration in healthcare, specifically clinical medicine, tends to be lower than in other industries. You know, in many ways, it's five to 10 to 15 years behind. And so when you have a space that's very complicated, where the stakes are very high and the tech integration is very low or somewhat low, I think that leads to an increased rate 
of mistakes. And, and of course, in medicine, it can have devastating consequences. And so it's not overly fair. It's, it's certainly not mostly fair to blame individuals. Uh, obviously, there is extreme use cases when individuals are to blame, but uh, it's not usually fair to blame individuals when something goes wrong. And I think you have to take a more systems level approach uh, because a lot of people are set up for failure, it seems. And so I guess the fundamental question is how can doctors, clinicians, and industry work together to use tech to decrease the barriers to success? And, and sometimes that means tech getting out of the way because all this tech can sometimes facilitate all the beeps and all the distractions that, that Vivian aptly pointed out. And how can we use tech to catch uh, human mistakes in process and knowledge and judgment and technical ability? So I think that element of human mistakes is an important one, but it requires some nuance and not focusing uh, on blame. Yeah, that was my takeaway for the conversation and really enjoyed the conversation, as I mentioned. Uh, for our audience members, join us next episode for more amazing conversations like this with amazing physicians. Uh, who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next week.